Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the editor of Agents of Change. We hope you are enjoying your summer, finding time to relax, decompress, practice some self-care, maybe catch up on some podcasts. Hopefully our podcast is part of that routine. And if we are, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and see how you can support this program at agentsofchangeinej.org. Part of our mission is not only bringing you the voices of early career scientists, but also established leaders in the field, and today is one of the latter. My guest is Dr. Diana Hernandez, a tenured associate professor of sociomedical sciences at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. She talks about her work on energy, equity, housing, and health, and how she's investing in the Bronx. Enjoy. All right. I am super happy to be joined by Dr. Diana Hernandez. Diana, how are you doing today? I'm all right. I'm doing well. Thank and you. Where, where are you today? Where are you talking to us from? I see a beautiful brick facade in the background. It looks very urban. It is. Um, so I'm at the Russell Sage Foundation. Um, it's where I've been for the past few months. I'm on sabbatical this year um, and I'm on a visiting a fellowship um, here at Russell Sage. Um, and uh, this place kind of brings together a bunch of social scientists um, that are working on issues of race, ethnicity, immigration, or social inequality, um, and other kind of topics um, that are related to the social condition um, to support uh, various forms of scholarship, but oftentimes book projects. Uh, and that's what I'm doing. I'm working on a book. Excellent. Well, congratulations. And I'm sorry at the same time, because I know book projects can be a just a huge, heavy load, but good for you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to read it because I've, uh, through this interview research, I've gotten to know what you've been up to and it's, it's really fascinating stuff. And, I, and I'm really happy that you're here today. So I'd like to start at the beginning. So you are from the Bronx, proudly from the Bronx. So tell me a little bit about your upbringing and what role, if any, it played in you wanting to become a researcher focused on health and justice. I mean, I think a lot of it has made more sense to me in hindsight. Um, growing up working class in a really poor neighborhood um, just was my kind of normal reality, I guess, when I was growing up in the South Bronx. And uh, I was born in a Section 8 building. Um, and my parents were uh, among the first to occupy uh, that building. It was new construction at that point. Um, there were facets of the building that to me are kind of fascinating today because they kind of link back to some of the things that I work on, um, including um, a community garden that was basically a designated space um, off to the left of the building, if you were looking at it straight on. Um, and my brother, my father being um, a migrant from uh, Puerto Rico um, and with, you know, a bit of a kind of agricultural background, like he had his little plot of um, land in the garden and would, um, uh, I guess he would grow peppers and other things and make the hot sauce that he would ultimately like put on my finger, my thumb that I, so I could stop sucking it. But that's like kind of <laughs> besides the point. Um, and I don't know that this, that needs to be like part of this, uh, this kind of discussion, but you know, it's all the things that, um, some of the things that I remember, but um the other pieces um, of my kind of life, um, I, I often think about my life as kind of uh, by place um, and um, and not place just by zip code, but also by like um, the um, address. Um, and that's a, a lot of how I think about my research. So I went from um, a building um, in the Morrisania section of the Bronx to um, a condo that my mom purchased uh, kind of post-divorce and uh, working full-time. And um, after, I guess, the year she graduated, that was her gift. Um, she finished her BA when I was 13, and we moved in 1995 to this um, condo. Um, and it was an interesting kind of what I like to call moving to opportunity because she became a homeowner. Um, I saw that kind of in real life, that transition. Um, it was also like a very different place. Um, because there were other kind of middle-income uh, families. We were probably one of the only 
um, households with a, uh, um, a single parent um, as head of household. Most of the other um, households were kind of intact. Um, and then um, after that, I actually became a homeowner myself uh, when I went to Cornell um, at the age of 19 for my PhD. Um, and that transition also really helped me to understand like what it means to like, you know, be a, um, a homeowner, but also like, you know, how to manage a lot of different things. Um, and, uh, and then when I moved back to the Bronx after finishing my PhD, I ended up also, um, I have had a partner at that time that was um, in real estate and I learned a lot from um, him about how to like manage properties. And then I ultimately started to buy um, properties on my own. And I was doing this kind of in parallel with um, this kind of research agenda that was trying to kind of get at um, housing in a more nuanced fashion and um, kind of understand it, not just as a platform for it is a platform for life, right? Like, I mean, we launch our lives from our homes every day, but also um, that it's not just about affordability um, and it's not just about neighborhoods. Um, and I think by at that time when I was kind of working on housing research, it was that or conditions. Um, and I've since started to kind of uh, tie a bow, I guess, uh, around the concept of, um, of housing um, and what its kind of dimensions are to better understand then ultimately how it links to health. Um, and it's both kind of a social and environmental platform um, or environment um, that ultimately kind of affects um, health in a, in a number of ways. Uh, so that's, I guess, the long story short around like how my upbringing in some ways has kind of um, influenced uh, this kind of nuanced understanding of uh, poverty and housing. Um, and my goal, I think, ultimately is uh, for people to enjoy um, decent, affordable uh, housing that um, is, is stable over time and that is situated in a neighborhood that offers the kinds of institutional uh, connections and other kind of opportunities for people to live their best life, regardless of the zip code or or the race ethnicity or other kind of dimensions of um, uh, like composition uh, of place. Um, I think this is something that we all deserve. So you mentioned Cornell briefly. And so you went to Hunter College, then Cornell for both your master's and PhD, focusing on sociology at all three of them. So what was it about the field of sociology that grabbed you and made you feel like you could make a positive difference through this sociological research? Um, so I, I mean, I remember having like these long walks with my mom. So like anybody that knows me knows that I love walks and talks. And I think maybe that just like started really early in my life. Um, and in that time, like, I think I was making sense of my social world. Um, and it was really easy for me, I don't know, like to process and I kind of analyze things in the social world. Um, and then when I went to college, I, I mean, I guess I was in a hurry um, and I took like a whole semester, but like six classes worth of 18 credits of sociology. And so I was basically immersed into sociology. And really after that time, um, there was no turning back. It was to me like extremely interesting and it provided a lens and a language by which to understand and process my own lived experience, but also the different worlds that I was straddling at the time. So right now, um, in fact, coming back to Russell Sage feels like full circle because um, Hunter is just four blocks away. Um, so I'm on 64th Street now, Hunter's on 68th Street in Lexington. Um, and uh, I, you know, like the Upper East Side is is one of the wealthiest communities in the United States and even the world in terms of like the concentration of wealth. And I was traveling to this very wealthy area in New York City from one of the poorest areas in the U.S. Um, and so that contrast and the kind of inequality to me was extremely fascinating. But somehow I hadn't really like processed the fact that I was so poor until I went to college, <laughs> um, which is just weird, right? Like, I guess we all get like enculturated um, and, you know, like 
the, our, our realities are normalized. And it's only when you see some kind of alternative that you realize like there is kind of, and in my case, like it was, there was just such a vast difference in opportunities and in how like, you know, kind of people would navigate things. So um, sociology for me has always been kind of a little bit of an anchor um, and being able to conceptualize like the social condition as well as kind of understand social patterning um, and um, and the people that are kind of the winners and losers in some ways. Um, and I hate to put it that way, but I guess in some ways I, I, I focus so heavily on, you know, issues of, uh, of inequality that um, it does kind of naturally, you know, like have this contrast between uh, people that are doing well and people that aren't. So before we get into some of that research you're talking about, I've been asking everyone on the podcast, what is a defining moment or event that shaped your identity up to this point? And that can be personal, professional. Um, I guess, uh, I mean, there's so many. When, um, so I guess my racial identity, for instance, I remember sitting on my aunt's lap. And at that point, I don't know why, but like, I just identified as white at that point. Like, um, and my aunt was very quick to tell me like, you're Puerto Rican. Um, and, and over time, like, obviously, like the ways in which I understand my own kind of identity um, has been more, um, it's more rooted in like, you know, these cultural histories and things like that. But I was, I'm so happy that, you know, she sat me down and was like, you know, just kind of like, told me the truth like i'm just puerto rican you know um and that was that was great um but i think i i i um i identify as a boss um not because i'm like the best manager but but i do understand that i am um a visionary um and that i am gifted with um the power of inspiration um, and to me, that's what leadership is about, um, is about bringing people along so that they start to see the world in a way that you see it. Um, and, um, and I actually learned that from developing housing, um, because I love the fact that I could take, you know, something that was dilapidated and, and, uh, and vacant, um, and underappreciated and, invest in it in all these kinds of ways, but really kind of set a vision for what it could be, even when and long before it was it was that. And so I've been really kind of fortunate to have this like parallel existence as a housing practitioner because that has helped me um, to form this identity as a boss. Um, I try to live up to that, but I don't know that I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm that great. Um, but I, I, you know, it's something that because I was successful in doing it in this one realm, I do feel like that um, kind of carries over um, into other dimensions of my, of my life and my work. Well, I can say that everybody I talk to about your work, uh, the, the the idea of you being a visionary, you are not the only one that holds that. Um, uh, that that came up a lot, uh, and in people I spoke to, in getting ready to talk to you. So, about your, I, I do want to talk about your real estate because I find that fascinating. But let's start with some of your research. So you focus on the intersection of energy, equity, housing, and health, and you're one of the the kind of the foremost researchers exploring uh, energy insecurity. So I think there was an incredibly kind of painful example of this in January, right there in the Bronx, where you're from, when a faulty space heater caused a deadly fire. This is just, you know, a few weeks back. So can you walk us through what that, terms mean, that term means in your research, that term energy insecurity? What makes people most vulnerable to this insecurity and some potential interventions you've seen in your research or other literature that, that we could use to combat this, um, this problem? Um, so I, I like to kind of at least start with the idea that recognition is the first step to justice, right? We can't correct for something that we can't name and that we can't identify as a problem. Um, and I'm fortunate um, because I listen and I trust people. Um, and I came to understand this problem of energy insecurity because I observed and I listened to people that were um, like dealing with this, ultimately this hidden hardship, right? Like this thing that, I mean, kept them home and they were cold or they were like totally nervous about their bills. They were totally indebted and behind um, on their, uh, you know, kind of utility expenses. They were juggling between different expenses. 
And it all had to do with their household energy um, and the ability for their like physical environment uh, to kind of meet the task um, of keeping them thermally comfortable um, and like just having the basics, like the lights on and, you know, appliances that function and things like that. Um, but also like the economic means by which to keep up. So um, energy insecurity is defined as the inability to adequately meet household energy needs. Um, and as my work in this space has evolved, I've also kind of started to think that it's not just about the dynamics that are happening at the household level, but it's also the kind of um, issues around the energy infrastructure and, and systems that exist. And also like these more macro level factors, of course, the kind of economy and things like that, but climate change, right? Climate change is adding pressures to the energy system. It's also adding pressures to households so that more people are actually, can be considered energy insecure um, and that are not poor. Um, I think about people like uh, the folks that are impacted by the wildfires in California. Um, and, you know, you have extremely wealthy people um, that are, you know, kind of being shut off preemptively because the utilities play a large kind of role um, in uh, creating and then exacerbating these wildfires. So there's this kind of interplay between energy systems and climate change. Now, um, what we observed in the Bronx, um, and it's, I mean, I think what the, you know, the fire that basically cost the lives of 17 people, nine of them children, um, in a building not unlike the one that I grew up in, it was built in the 70s. Um, it was part of this resurgence of like building the Bronx back up, you know, like after the kind of fires that were set sometimes intentionally, um, sometimes just by um, kind of, you know, like lack of maintenance and things like that. Um, but it harkens to this idea that there are people that are coping with um, inadequate conditions, thermal conditions um, in their buildings and rely on alternative heating, um, like like the uh, alternative heating methods, sorry, um, like uh, the space heaters or ovens or stovetops to keep warm. And in this case, uh, the space heater was on incessantly um, there were also um, issues around uh, the uh, fire alarms. They would go off um, so much so that people kind of like learned to ignore them because they were false alarms. Um, and this is really situated in a broader problem of like many, many people living in the Bronx in particular, like calling in for no heat complaints on an annual basis. So since they've been collecting this data, the Bronx has always come up, especially if you do a per capita kind of analysis as, you know, kind of most um, impacted by the lack of uh, the lack of heat. Conversely, in, winter, in the summertime, many more people that live in the Bronx don't own an air conditioner. Um, and so, you know, this idea that, um, to, you know, the way that I imagine living in dignity is, you know, like being able to be comfortable without having to be exaggerated in like what you're wearing at home, for instance, too little or too much um, because you're trying to manage uh, the thermal conditions. And the Bronx is like kind of the least able to live in that kind of a dignified manner. That's what I call um, energy insecurity. And my research has basically shown um, in a lot of different ways, using a lot of different kind of data points that um, this affects people of color, low income people, um, and people living in kind of certain housing forms the most. Um, and, you know, it's kind of an opportunity for us to intervene because now it's packaged in a way that we understand it. So then we can kind of plan um, policy and programmatic interventions accordingly. So another leg of this of this kind of table of research that you, that you look at is housing. And I think most of us have a relatively limited view when we think of housing. But in your research, you've pointed out that healthy housing spans, you, you mentioned these four pillars, conditions, cost, consistency, 
and context. Can you talk about these pillars and how they interact to influence health and health disparities? Yeah, so the the four C's of housing conditions, cost, um, uh, consistency, and and context are really all about understanding um, the economic um, aspects of housing, right? Um, it's also about understanding um, environmental quality, so those conditions. Um, it's also being able to process like displacement um, and those factors that might displace people um, that are happening uh, at a at a larger scale, like gentrification um, uh, or you know some kind of a climate impact. And then the idea of like kind of getting people back into those neighborhoods um, is a problem um, or or evictions, right? That's a you know within that consistency pillar. And then neighborhood effects. Um, so the idea that people could actually like um, you know, live in a in a safe uh, neighborhood, in a neighborhood that has good um, schools, that has um, grocery stores um, with healthy and affordable food, um, that you know just has like kind of the amenity, green space, like amenities that make it livable and also healthy. Um, and at any one point, uh, some of those issues are being there's tension, right? So. So sometimes affordable housing is in a neighborhood environment that isn't really set up with a lot of opportunity uh, in different forms, or that affordable housing um, is probably sometimes often um, having kind of conditions issues. So it isn't the healthiest environment. And the other tension is really about like, if you're challenged around affordability, your uh, opportunity to like stay voluntarily in that place without being displaced or forced out um, is, is more challenged. Um, those, again, that packaging of, uh, of housing and understanding it in that way uh, also helps us to understand not just the usual suspects around health outcomes, uh, so such as asthma, for instance, or chronic stress, um, right? I mean, people that are burdened by like affordability challenges or the cumulative burden of all of those things combined are just carrying a lot. And so, of course, um, they're feeling more stressed. I mean, in the context of um, a neighborhood environment that doesn't feel welcoming or safe or, you know, doesn't, I mean, that literally means that your home environment is that much more important. Uh, there's a lot more reliance on that. If there's lead exposure. If there's, I mean, all of these things basically start, there's like all these pressure points. And so my work has really, at least conceptually, um, you know, started to paint a picture around the links between these pillars and a number of different um, outcomes that can come of it uh, in the physical form of health, um, including like, you know, general health status, um, hospitalizations, emergency room visits, these kinds of things, as well as mental health. Um, uh, and because we can't disconnect um, mental health from physical health, um, you know, public health is, I, I come at public health as a sociologist, so I think a little bit more upstream, if you can uh, even see that as a pattern. Um, so I'm not committed to an outcome, a, a health outcome. I mean, a lot of the ways in which um, NIH, for instance, is organized is around a disease state. Uh, I just don't think about um, the links between housing and health based on one particular disease state because I can see all of the ways in which, you know, they, um, the, the housing um, kind of the, the pillars of housing or um, the the context of housing ultimately uh, can uh, impact um, you know child health um, you know prenatal health of the health of the elderly like so many pieces um, come together and you can look at you know like age appropriate um, outcomes as well if you're kind of uh, more agnostic um, to a particular outcome but more so looking at the upstream determinants, which I would say housing is is sitting um, more upstream for sure. So you mentioned children. So let's take a second and connect us to kind of federal federal housing policy. So you've examined national housing policies, including public housing and rental assistance, and how it influences early childhood development. So what did you find, and what are some areas our federal housing safety net could improve to better serve children? 
Um, so you're referring to a study that we did in Fresno, California. Um, it was the first um, site where the rental assistance demonstration program was implemented. Um, and it's since kind of, it has become so standardized, but at that point it was really novel to look at um, what this you know, repackaging of housing actually looked like. It was basically going from section nine housing, which is public housing um, to section eight housing. But in this case, project-based is the vouchers that I think people are more familiar with, but you can also like live, like like how I lived in a section eight building. So uh, the, um, the subsidy is attached to the actual building. Um, and what was interesting about that transition wasn't so much the administrative shift from section nine to section eight. It actually meant nothing. Uh, it wasn't any different for a household um, that was um, impacted by that that change. They still paid the same kind of third, a third of their um, household income uh, to to rent. Um, but what did come of it was uh, an unlocking of capital improvement funding. So one of the biggest challenges of public housing is the conditions um, in which uh, they exist in part because of when they were built uh, in large part um, at the turn of the last century, well, not the turn of the middle of the last century. So the 50s, 60s, 70s, that's when a lot of the public housing um, was uh, constructed and it needs maintenance um, and not only maintenance at different points, you actually need major capital improvements. But because this is all um, uh, it's subject to congressional approval. Um, the you know there were always lots and lots and lots of issues in getting the dollars um, for the necessary capital improvements, and so that shift um, is in some ways what it has been referred to. It's not always constructed this way, but the privatization of public housing, where there are private partners that come in and and kind of have ownership ownership stake. Um, in public housing in order to activate um, the kind of capital improvement pieces and to leverage the uh, properties themselves um, as assets. Um, so like like capital assets, like stuff that you own and, and appreciate and value, um, as opposed to just kind of um, managing it as, as a government, um, you know, like property essentially. Um, and what we found when, when that, um, when in that transition in Fresno, the Fresno Housing Authority actually was really good about, like, they were the, the main, the, the developers. So they didn't really engage in like a public private partnership. So that's why the structuring of those deals isn't always as simple as saying that it's the privatization of public housing in any way, any, you know, like anyway, you cut it. Um, what was really interesting and in that came from that transition, um, is, that they were able to upgrade um, the units substantially. Like they put in new cabinets, um, new kitchen cabinets, actually like sometimes in increase the square footage of the actual units, put in washers and dryers, um, dishwashers, upgraded the heating and cooling. Um, just like basically, it was like, you know, those shows, you know, HGTV or whatever, for like for public housing, uh, which was pretty cool. Um, and it was interesting to see it unfold. But I think ultimately what that did for the families that we were tracking uh, that had children, we were looking at educational outcomes. Um, so the um, kids that were living in rad sites were less likely to be um, absent from school and um, more likely to have kind of better um, GPAs. Um, and so there were kind of positive educational um, outcomes. But when we also asked parents about like what this transition meant for them, they were more proud about where they lived they felt that they had more amenities, not just um, in their built in like in their actual units, but because there were also upgrades um, and partnerships uh, for um, other amenities on site. That was also uh, kind of um, more helpful, and they felt like combined all of those things meant that the kind of renewed environment uh, was better for their children. Um, and I believe that that is. And we actually saw that in New York City too. We looked at RAD um, in the Bronx and we were looking at um, smoking indoors as an outcome. 
um, and also residential satisfaction. And a year before and a year after uh, doing surveys, we did find positive uh, results on both of those indicators, um, showing on the one hand that when you know the places invested in by others, people are more likely to take care of it, which is the indoor smoking, maybe even having kind of less stress to contend with, so less need to actually be smoking um, indoors, but also just generally reporting um, greater satisfaction in their residential environments. And um, I think all of those things are really, really hopeful. So let's stay on the optimistic front here, because uh, talking about um, environmental injustice and energy insecurity can be can often be a little overwhelming. What are some areas that, where are some places, other places that you see optimism and hope and solutions that are happening both in kind of the uh, fair housing and, and housing available to people and energy security? I have to say that um, I'm most hopeful on the energy side. I think the housing side is very complicated. I think housing, um, the housing stock that exists is getting better. When, when available, like resources exist. But I still think that they, many, many people are locked out of housing and affordable housing at that. Um, I don't think that we have a good handle on the question of homelessness, even in a right to housing city like New York City. There are many more people that, need, that, are, um, that are homeless than should be um, because we also haven't figured out the long-term strategy. So I'm concerned about housing in general. Um, I don't know that that kind of goes away. Um, but I can say that energy is actually a platform for making housing better. A lot of the um, the issues that people have in their homes have a lot to do with, um, uh, with energy efficiency um, and with the kind of energy performance. So how do you make a home habitable, especially these days, um, that you're able to kind of turn on the lights and have um, the heating and cooling that you need. That's one, it's not the only, but I think it's a really important and big um, aspect. And I think that there are like, new investments uh, that are happening within the energy space um, to improve the infrastructure uh, of buildings and homes. Um, and I think right now what I'm excited about is that the conversation is happening with equity as a starting place. Um, it, 10 years ago, I mean, I, I, I published my first paper in 2010 on this whole issue of uh, housing and energy. Um, and I'd been kind of thinking about it for a little bit longer than that. So, I mean, let's talk about it as a decade and a half endeavor. It's kind of interesting that we talk about energy justice and we talk about um, the question of just transitions. I think now in such a present and upfront way, um, whereas when I first started this work, like the decarbonization and climate people were talking about this as like uh, environmental, you know, like issues and whatever. And it was all about like the environment, but not really like the people that are implicated in this. And I think now the conversation around energy has really shifted. Um, and there's a recognition that, you know, we have to kind of be thinking about equity um, and an equitable and just transition, not just the transition, um, because, you know, we can shift um, energy resources and sources. Um, but, it, you know, if some people are co completely left behind, um, and also the ones that have like from their own kind of um, behaviors, the lightest kind of carbon footprint, um, it's just unfair. And I think that there were a few things that kind of inspired a little bit of, a, of an emphasis on this. Of course, like the, the research and like kind of, it just takes a little bit of time for all of that stuff to pick up. But obviously there was like all the pressures around um, George Floyd. I mean, I think that that kind of opened up the need to be thinking about um, racial inequities and all of the ways in which people are people of color, black people, indigenous people, Latinx, like just the whole gamut of people of color are just having challenges and like just being um, and police brutality is one example of that. Um, but there are so many other examples. And I think that, you know, it was kind of this opportunity for people to start looking within and to start making commitments about um, justice. I'm not going to necessarily say that all of those commitments are full of um, 
that they will be fruitful, but I'm happy that at least it's, you know, like top of mind and tip of tongue, um, because that's really, I think, progress compared to where we were um, not too long ago. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the summer of 2020, it also got a lot of people that were working on justice and race issues uh, together. Maybe they were operating in silos. Maybe it was economic justice over here and environmental justice here, police brutality and criminal justice reform. And it seemed like, at least from my point of view, that a lot of them started coming together, those groups, those activists, those researchers, and saying, no, this is all connected. This is all part of the same problem. And that seems like it's gotten the snowball growing and moving a lot faster to me. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we need the kind of those exponentiating forces uh, to come and and just say, like, you know, people aren't just suffering in this particular way. They're suffering in a lot of different ways. And there's a lot of room for improvement. And there's more so if we actually kind of come together um, on these issues. And so, yeah, I I agree with your your assessment that, um, you know, there there is this kind of force multiplier uh, that happened in 2020. and I think also other people like I mean, I think really what happened in 2020 was that, you know, people started to connect the dots, like let's say like the social justice community and stuff like that. I think also people outside of that community started to kind of look within and say, like, what are we doing that contributes to this? Um, and that's important because power uh, flows not just from the powerless uh, trying to get attention, but also from people that possess power. Uh, to be willing to interrogate uh, the ways in which um, their possession of this resource um, is contingent upon other people not having it and also um, where they might need to give up a little bit of those privileges in order for there to be just a bit more equity and a bit more justice. Um, Because the plight for social justice can't just be about people that um, want more without also the engagement of people that have more. Right. And so on this, on this optimistic tip, we've mentioned this earlier, you mentioned some of your real estate work. So uh, full disclosure, uh, Diana came and talked to the Agents of Change fellows and talked about this. And it was the first thing as a journalist that went off in my head. Oh, that's interesting. This is interesting stuff. So in addition to all of your research work, you've gotten involved in um, social impact real estate in the Bronx. That's at least how it was described um, on your professor researcher page there, which I, I really like the way that's put. So tell us what is social impact real estate and what have you done there in your native Bronx with it? Um, so like I said, they're different iterations of social impact real estate. I think the big developers, like, you know, the people that do like low income housing tax credit deals and all that stuff, like they think about what they're doing as social impact real estate uh, because they're providing housing, um, like affordable housing. One could like, you know, debate how affordable it really is, but like that's, you know, I think the big umbrella and more than likely how people are you know, might be kind of thinking about social impact real estate. Um, I think of myself as like a proof of concept person. Uh, and, And by that, I mean, like, what if more of us that have options about where we live, um, basically chose to live in neighborhoods that, um, that, that require a little bit more attention, but also more intentionality, um, so I I was thinking about this recently, and um, this year, I have an 82-year um, family legacy in South in the South Bronx. Um, so my grandmother came in 1940 um, as a Puerto Rican migrant, um, and she was really kind of part of the first wave of Puerto Ricans leaving uh, the island for kind of better opportunities in the Bronx. She was 16. She came to, like help her sister out as a caretaker for her nieces and nephews. Um, And uh, she was a black Puerto Rican and had all kinds of, in the US understood in that way. Um, And so uh, there's a story and I can't verify because my grandmother has since passed away, but um, that during her, um, uh, her, honeymoon, uh, she and her husband went to um, Chicago, but he was processed as a white 
person and she was processed as a black person and it was very much in the Jim Crow era and they had to like, you know, like separate in, in the restaurant and like how heartbreaking, right, to be on your honeymoon and to have that kind of experience. In any case, um, the, the uh, with these kind of big um, and strong roots in the, in the Bronx, um, when I went to grad school, um, it was really my first time leaving uh, the city and um, having to like reconstitute my relationship with the Bronx. And at first it was a lot of shame. Um, shame because like now I was like inundated in this other environment in upstate New York where there's like a college town and everything was clean and like just, you know, like ran really like efficiently and nicely. And like, and I was like at this like fancy school for the first time in my life and like all of the buildings and like just, I mean, talk about the built environment, giving signals about how important you are um, and like this kind of historical embeddedness and all of this stuff. Like um, it was just, I, I just was like having all kinds of like feelings about, you know, what was going on. And, and I think a very legitimate feeling was a feeling of coming back and like kind of processing the Bronx with a certain criticism uh, about how chaotic it was and how dirty it could be and like how uh, problematic like on a social level it was. And then I started reading sociology books and like starting to think like, well, yeah, that's interesting because I mean, one of the things that happens with upward mobility is the exit strategy um, and the idea that you start to kind of align yourself with uh, this more kind of mainstream uh, vision for where to live and how to like go about your life. Um, and I felt like, you know, we were all like that people like me were kind of invested in this idea of uh, these social markers of progress um, because we then chose the right zip codes and we like kind of engage in all of this stuff. But what if we turn that on its head? And what if we were the ones that actually like bought up properties um, and uh, lived in the communities? Um, I always felt this charge to be a role model. Like ever since I was young, I always, I, I felt, I don't know why, like, but I felt like I needed to be like the person that kids looked up to, you know, like, um, and then I was like, well, I could afford on my little, like, uh, I guess it was, yeah, professor salary to buy, you know, properties in the Bronx and to rehab them. Um, and I've done that. Um, and it's, it was, I mean, I remember like people kind of looking at me like, what do you do? You know, like, and now they, they just think I'm brilliant, but, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it was just kind of a social experiment. Uh, I mean, I have to say that my husband is from Brooklyn and like those borough like identities, like are, are a real thing. Um, and so, uh, he, he has moved to the Bronx um, very reluctantly, um, but I think he also has come around to understanding and appreciating, and he said this the other day, so I'm going to quote him. He said, you know, the Bronx gives a lot of love. It just doesn't get a lot of love back. And I think it's been that kind of reputational hazard that is more of, a, of an issue than the real, like, you know, dynamics that are happening in the community. Um, and I just am... When I say that I do social impact real estate, it's because my goal is to allow people that are living in the neighborhood to continue to live in the neighborhood, um, but to do so with an elevated kind of um, standard of living, um, like, you know, actually inside of the units, because the units are really beautiful. Um, and I really have prided myself um, in investing my own hard-earned capital. Like if I didn't have my professor job, I couldn't be a real estate person. Maybe people think of it as like the opposite, but it's true. Like uh, at least, you know, initially. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's the social impact. The social impact is me living in an environment where somebody like me doesn't have to live, um, but, you know, kind of intentionally chooses to live. And me, making it possible for other people that are like, that are in the community um, to live well um, and, and, to, uh, and to enjoy um, the pillars of housing that I think are important, even as we work on that kind of context piece. Um, but that's um, my little like 
slice of the solutions. I think it's very cool. It reminds me when I when I graduated from college. I'm from uh, Detroit, and there was this. There was kind of people in my in my social circle. A lot of people went to Chicago in these kind of upscale neighborhoods. It's basically after college, everybody, all these Big Ten kids go to these these places in Chicago. But and this was before Detroit has had a lot of its uh, energy and the economic development it's had in the last. Um, decade, and you can, you know, we could certainly talk about if that economic development is reaching all of the areas of the city. But it, it certainly it's become a more vibrant place. And I always thought like a lot of people are attracted to places that are already there, so to speak, or places that have um, that are maybe not there yet. But if you are willing to put a little bit of your time and effort, there's so much opportunity in those places. And I always thought Detroit was such a place of opportunity, not just because housing was cheaper than in Chicago or wherever, but there was just such a kind of a beautiful, gritty resilience um, to the place. Um, and that kind of spiderwebbed into urban gardens and the music scene and, and all kinds of aspects of it. So I always thought of these two two distinct kinds of people, those that want to invest in the place that they're at or kind of want to go where it's already fixed up and ready. Well, and I think the interesting thing is that there's, I guess, another piece to that for the people that um, are investing um, in the places that are not quite there is also like um, how much you're invested in just an improvement of of what is um, like a revitalization versus like literally um, reconstituting the the whole um, neighborhood. So I mean, what's really to me like so striking these days is that there's like literally luxury housing um, in in the South Bronx. And I say that because I'm just like, um, that's just interesting, but it just doesn't feel like it's for the people that are here. Right. Like it literally like feels like there's this idea that they're just going to somehow attract like all these other folks that like have no ties to the community and are not invested in what is and then the people that are there, they just want like uh, to like like totally just redo the um, cultural and and uh, people landscape of the build of the uh, of, of these neighborhoods. I mean, it's gentrification, right? Like, um, and and that I think is the difference between people that are investing for the purposes of improving, you know, what's there versus like the people that just want something that's totally different and they're doing it driving with, with, with the investment being as the, the kind of driving force um, as opposed to like the preservation. I don't know. I mean, I haven't necessarily like articulated this. That maybe might that might be my next book, but um, you know, it's just like, there is something to this, right? There's something to the idea that, some people want um, things to be a better version of what, you know, um, of what it is versus like wanting to do a total like kind of rehauling of um, of the neighborhoods. Yeah, you touched on the nuance that I that I didn't mention that I that I meant to. And I'm glad you did is the fact that you don't want to turn it into the Upper East Side. You want it to remain the Bronx, but just have people have a higher a higher uh, standard of living there, better, better housing, better amenities and stuff. And I think that's, that's the difference is, um, and it's very cool. I, I love the idea that you're doing that and connecting your research to some of the stuff you're doing outside of it there, especially in um, a place that you love. So I have a few more questions here. Uh, and these are kind of more about your, your experience as, um, as a woman, as a woman of color uh, in this field. So first you're only the one of, one of the only tenured women of color at your institution. And I was wondering what changes do you want to help create to address this problem, which is of course, not just at your institution, but all across the country. Um, I mean, I want to, well, first of all, normalize the idea that we could be badasses um, and like <laughs> exist in these institutions that, you know, for so long, you know, kind of fell out of reach Um and so, you know, I think part of it, again, is that idea of like being just a role model, like, you know, that, that you know, that there's growth and there's leadership, actually, and just being um, and totally owning a story um, that is familiar without it being compromised by these other ambitions around like, you know, um, uh, 
ac- uh, culturating and kind of acclimating to this mainstream. Um, so I feel like I'm like, I have an anti-mainstream story, like, and I, and I like it and I, and I think, and I hold that to high regard. Um, but I'm also, um, especially now, like so committed and so intentional about my, the composition of my team um, and investing in bringing others forward. Um, I just had a lab meeting yesterday um, and since I've been away and like the pandemic and the whatever, but like, I just have like badass women of color on my team. I'm like, yes. And they all like have ambitions of, you know, like going and getting their own PhDs. And I see other um, folks that uh, like Daniel Gajiong, I know is, um, is also uh, an AOCEJ um, fellow and like, you know, some of the other mentees that I've had over the years that like, they're just powerful and amazing in their own way, but they really add to the diversity of the academy. They're asking more nuanced and interesting questions in part because they're bringing their own diverse lived experiences. Um, and to me, um, that's what I, that's what I'm about. Like, I, I feel like I have made this turn over to like, I think I've established my my research and the importance of the work that I do enough that um, I can now leverage um, my my scholarship and my reputation in the field to help others come up. Like I just think that that's kind of amazing, and I'm so grateful um, to the many people that did that for me. Not they didn't always look like me either, and so like I don't always necessarily think that your mentors have to be, you know, people that have the exact same profile as you, but they have to be kind, and they should be generous, and they should be able to allow you license to be all of the amazing things that you are, and that to me is like the the guiding principles that I'm living with, um, in terms of who I'm supporting and how I'm supporting this kind of next generation. And the fact that like, that is my focus now um, is a testament to the fact that I I can't say that I've made it like that I have like achieved all of the amazing things that I'd like to achieve in life, but that I'm at a place that really requires me uh, to bring others also along um, and allow them to kind of flourish in all of the amazing ways that they should. I'm glad you mentioned that second part because I happen to work with uh... Um, a whole bunch of badass women of color at Agents of Change. I think there's seven or eight of them. And uh, and as an editor now, I've, I've been in this for 10 years. And I'm, of course, I'm a white, I'm a white guy and, and obviously was afforded a lot of privilege to get where I'm at. But when you make it, regardless of who you are, you can use that position to try to get uh, diverse voices out there. Um, so I, I really appreciate that thought, because I, you know, we're, we're trying to do that as well. And, and you don't have to, to be a member of a group to try to elevate voices. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, my, my own mentor is, she's like my Jewish mom, like, <laughs> and I actually have a few of those, like just good people that were like, you know, we see you, we believe in you and you have something to say and to offer and like go. And you know, that's really what a mentor is about. Like a mentor isn't about like, um, I guess there are different kinds of mentors. And I think that there, there are different ways in which they can be influential in your own development. But that is, I think, um, an important piece to this. And that's, and I've learned to hire this way, which before I used to like kind of focus so much on credentials um, and on what people said that they could do and like what how their resumes like, you know, shook out. Now I'm like, who are you? Um, what's your, you know, like, what's your story? What's your motivation? And what's your willingness to like, just learn and be versatile? That I value more than, you know, somebody that comes in with the most polished resumes. Um, I'm like, I'm more concerned with their work ethic. I'm much more concerned, um, with like their kind of personal characteristics, um, and not so much like all of the ways in which, you know, especially people that have, I guess, been tracked, um, in a certain way, like they would present in that fashion, but that hasn't, in my, in my experience, materialized into, uh, the most helpful, um, team members. And so, um, I used to not trust myself because I think I used to focus too heavily on, on what's on paper. Now I focus a lot more on those intangibles that ultimately like kind of open up 
the the possibilities for people to just you know be flexible in how they approach things and like um, be ingenious about like their contributions. And I value that a lot more now. So you mentioned your your Jewish mother, and you uh, speaking of motherhood. So you are a new mom. So first of all, congratulations on that. What a big a big life step. So how has motherhood changed your approach to your work? Um, it's funny because as you say that, I'm just thinking about my baby and her two little teeth and how she has another one coming in and like, you know, it's just like paying attention to the details of another life. And it's, it's, it's amazing. Like on the one hand, there's like, um, like new responsibilities. Like yesterday, again, I had this like team meeting. I had to like drop my baby off at daycare beforehand like I never I used to just like you know roll up to you know campus and like go right ahead into like you know my work day now it's just it's different it's you know I'm balancing um you know caretaking and uh and just like loving this like little person who like just is so funny in her own little ways and has like this amazing personality and I try to share her and integrate like this important piece of my life um, into like uh, my my work that, that, I mean, maybe because she's only 10 months. And so like, uh, I don't know how much that will always be the case, but right now, like we just, you know, are very connected. Um, and uh, it's a really beautiful thing. And my, my life, I think is a little bit more complex um, now than it ever was. Cause I, there was, I mean, I got to the point of, you know, being a tenured professor, I think, um, I'm going to say this and it's, and it's a little controversial and I just wish that um, it wasn't the case, but because I didn't have a child, like I was just so dedicated to work um, and I, you know, like pushed ahead. And um, I think, I think our workplaces aren't kind to, to mothers in particular um, and to parents um, in general. Um, but I can't do that anymore. So now I'm like, I have to depend on other people in a lot of different ways. I depend on the care side, uh, sometimes like strangers, you know, like I'm putting my child in the care of strangers. Um, but that allows me to, you know, be a full person because I do, you know, I see myself as being a mom, but also more than a mom. Um, and, uh, and I still want to be able to contribute professionally, um, but but it's just amazing to like go home to uh, my husband and, and my child and like you know play and it's, I don't know just it's just sweet it's just a very very sweet thing um, and I know it's not for everybody uh, but for those that like kind of choose this route I would say um, that there's I think a way to do it I'm still trying to figure it out but I think that there's also like um, I hope some flexibility in how that works um, I don't know that I. Uh, have all the answers there. I think it's a work in progress. Well. Uh, but but the enjoyment factor um, and, you know, just the fulfillment of, for me, like I always wanted to be a, a parent. And so um, I love being, uh, I, I love being a professional, but it never, uh, it, it still felt a little empty for me. Um, it wasn't enough for me to feel fulfilled, but now I feel like I'm just like living living the dream. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Well, that is so nice to hear. And I have, I've been starting this three rapid fire questions where you can just answer with one word or phrase, just three of them. And then we can move on and I can get you out of here. You've been so gracious with your time. So my first one is my favorite coffee shop in the Bronx is. Um, my Nespresso machine at home. Yankees, Mets, <laughs> or I couldn't care less. Uh, I'm a New York fan. Uh, obviously, Bronx, you know, is, is a working class family, Mets, but I'm a Bronx girl. So um, I rep the, the Yankees too, but I guess I'm like not really a, a sports person anyway. So New York all the way. <laughs> My favorite comfort food is? Oh God, potato chips. <laughs> excellent and diana my last question that i've been asking everybody and i have to compile these one of these days because there are some good ones on there what is the last book that you read for fun um i like i feel like i have trouble remembering what that is uh but it's probably probably daring greatly by Brittany uh brown um i love me a little self-help book here and there so that's the last one that I, and the gifts of imperfection, uh, also, uh, by her. Um, yeah. 
Excellent. Well, Diana, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. That is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Diana. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit agentsofchangeinej.org and while you're there, click the donate button and help us out. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram, and please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher. This podcast was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me with outreach scheduling and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshida Ornelas-Vanhorn, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and assistant editor Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is now sung by Poddington Bear. We'd like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeinej at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity and science and health going. Join me next time when I speak with Dr. Max Ong, an assistant professor at the University of Southern California Keck School of Medicine and assistant director at the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice Program. Have a great week, folks. Thank you.